Thank you, man. Okay, we're all set now. And uh, uh, I can't remember what I was going to say. But anyway, uh, oh yeah, when we're, when we're younger, the things stick a little bit better, and it's certainly good to, to do that. Well, anyway, back to James chapter number one. What we'd like to do here uh, tonight is really begin, we kind of laid a foundation this morning, really salvation. And, the, and with the men, I kind of laid a theological foundation where we're going. And if I could call this week anything, I'd call it this, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And tomorrow night, I'm going to go to James chapter number two, unless the Lord directs elsewhere. I won't preach my full uh, message through James chapter number two, but I want to take part of it. And I want us to develop this important uh, uh, concept of what is the relation between faith and works. And it's very important. We're going to deal with that tomorrow. We'll have some practical aspects to it. We'll have some theological aspects to it. But I hope it will lean, because if you don't get that right, uh, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, you could easily get into what we might call sanctification legalism if you don't get that thing right. So we'll talk about that tomorrow. I'm excited about it because the truth is great. great. It's a wonderful truth that are in James chapter number two. And many times people go out the wrong window in James chapter number two. Uh, they think saving faith without works is dead. That's not what it's saying. Uh, James chapter two, uh, James, the book of James was not written to lost people. It was written to save people. And so James chapter number two, if you look at it, the word brethren is used throughout the book. And what James is saying is sanctifying faith without works is dead. Faith in the Christian life doesn't work without works, okay? And we're going to talk about that tomorrow. And uh, we're going to use things like means. We're going to talk about means tomorrow. So if you now think about it, I want you to think about what is means, okay? What is the means of salvation? What's the means of sanctification? What's the means of revival? What's the means... Of assurance. I'm already getting joked up about it. Okay, unbelievable. And then uh, what's the means of faith? Oh, that one's different, isn't it? And we're going to talk about all that. And I think it'll be exciting for you. I hope you'll think about that. And then we'll be back for James chapter number two. But right now, James chapter number one. I believe the book of James is all about faith. It's about living faith. It's about what faith looks like in the Christian life. And we're going to start right here at the beginning with the very first thing that uh, James tells us about faith and how it affects the Christian life. Now I'm going to say something in, in introduction that I said to the men, and I, I wasn't even thinking about repeating it, but I thought to myself, you know, maybe that would help give context to the message. I was mentioning to the men this morning that my dad, uh, when he was preaching, I, I, I know clearly that a lot of things about spirit-filled life uh, my dad preached but I was so young, I didn't get it, okay? Even up through high school, I was just, you have to have the lights turn on. When somebody's teaching that truth, you have to have the Holy Spirit illuminate. I, I just didn't get it. Now, later on, light bulbs began to go on. I began to realize, oh, yeah, I think now I'm seeing what my dad was teaching back years ago. But one of the things he taught that I thought was quite interesting, my dad was a dispensationalist. And like I mentioned to you men, if you believe in a literal hermeneutic, that's a literal approach to biblical interpretation, you will be a dispensationalist, whether you call it that or not. And uh, But a uh, dispensationalist, and he preached a message, and I can't remember all the proof texts, but he preached a message pointing out that the Christian life uh, is literally the dispensations. And I mentioned to the men, I'm just going to say this in repeating, I mentioned to the men, when a man gets saved, guess what happens? They come into the very first phase of the Christian life. You know what that's called? Innocence. You know, how many people get saved and think, you know, I'm never going to sin again. You know, I got this thing. And uh, probably within a few hours they sin and they move clearly into the second dispensation, which is conscience. And their conscience begins to bother them in a way that it didn't before they got saved. You remember that? And then somewhere after conscience, you kind of go by your conscience for a while. Somewhere along the line, you get into what I would call human government slash 
uh, legalism or law living. In other words, many times a Christian goes into the, ne the next phase, which is they find usually some leader, and they begin to follow that leader, uh, pretty much just whatever they say, and they kind of begin to get law, they're big about rules, etc. Not that any of those rules are wrong, uh, they're usually right, but they get into a self-dependent Christianity, trying to keep the, the rules, the laws, which are biblical, but trying to keep them in their own strength. And we know how that works, it doesn't. That's what happens, okay? That doesn't work. And somewhere along the line, if they have a heart for God, guess what happens? They have an awakening and they realize the Christian life is not through self-dependence. The Christian life is through God-dependence and God graces us with supernatural intervention. Wow. Boy, I don't know how many people I've heard, and I mentioned this this morning, say when they get a hold of this truth, it's like getting saved all over again. And it really is. It's, it's really understanding sanctification. That's why it's so revolutionary. Oh, I get it now. I've been trying hard to live the Christian life in my own strength and uh, trying to keep the, the rule book, so to speak, in my own strength, and it hasn't been working. Romans chapter 7. Man, uh, yeah, I know how to do right, but I don't. Okay, so, so we get that. And then uh, what happens is uh, they uh, live in grace, and many times they think, I got this Christian life thing. It's going to be smooth sailing now to the, till the kingdom. And guess what happens? Don't miss this. Tribulation. <laughs> and that's what we're going to talk about today. Because the Bible tells us tribulation worketh patience. Wow. We're going to talk about this. And by the way, why is it important? Because it is this stage in the Christian life that gives birth to Christian maturity. You know what I call that? Millennial rest. <laughs> Kingdom rest. Hebrews chapter number 4. It's a Christian life that is characterized by rest no matter what's happening. <laughs> See, rest, uh, I remember several years ago I was counseling a mom and a daughter, and the daughter had made some very immoral decisions, and it was really pretty much disastrous. My wife was with me as we were counseling. We spent a whole day with them, and I, I was trying to help them out. I had a whiteboard, and we're just trying to give them some help to try to grapple through the, what they're going through. And I remember I thought, well, how can I help? And I thought, okay, let me ask you a question. Is your Christian life characterized by rest, or is your Christian life characterized by a lack of rest? I will never forget the mother's answer. Because she didn't in, in hesitate. She said, oh, it's characterized by a lack of rest. You know what that indicates? That we're not at Christian maturity yet. I've told my daughters, Christian maturity is not perfection. None of us are going to get there till heaven. But Christian maturity is the ability to counsel yourself out of your own problems. Yeah, you know where to go. And it's rest because there's a trust in God no matter what's going on. So let's, let's talk about how to get there. Because I know this congregation in many ways, many of you have been illuminated to grace. You understand, man, God's just putting it, oh man, I've been trying hard to live the Christian life, failing all the time. And all of a sudden you get a hold of the fact, trust in God for divine intervention. You begin to see God work in your life. Whoa, that's exciting. But God has another stage here. And we're going to see that faith needs to be refined. And he's going to help us here. So go to James chapter number 1. Let's look at verses 2 through 4. And then we'll preach the message. It says, My brethren, see there it is. He's talking to Christians. Count it all joy when you fall in the divers temptations. Knowing this, here it is, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Wow. Of course, the idea of the perfect there is complete. It's the idea not of sinless, but perfect in the sense of mature. And so uh, notice, if you would, please, there's two commands here. 
Real simple message. There's two commands, and after each command, you know what God does? He gives us a reason why. Now, you know how it is in parenting. Uh, sometimes parents uh, will ask their kids to do something, and uh, uh, the child will say, uh, why, or something like that. Now, my mother had a pat answer for that, and it would be because, anybody know the rest of it? I Oh, your mom and mine might have got along together. I don't know. Yeah, because I said so. Do you know that's not necessarily unbiblical? Children, obey your parents of the Lord, for this is right. Didn't say they were smarter than you. In most cases, we're not. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it said because it's right. Okay, that's not wrong for that. And sometimes God just tells us what to do. He doesn't give us any reason. You ever notice that? But other times... God might be sometimes a little bit more like my dad. My dad might be in the kind, if I said, Dad, why? He'd probably explain it to me and uh, give me whatever the reason was. And uh, that's not necessarily wrong either because that's what God does right here. See, he, he didn't just command us. He gives us a reason why under both commands. So this is a really nice message on a Sunday night because uh, I know many of you here have been a long day thus far. And I got a two-point message. Isn't that nice? Just two points. Not even three, just two. Okay, so each command is its own point, And then uh, we're going to look at the reason for the command, explain the command, explain the reason, we'll be done. Okay, let's look what it says here. My brethren, here's the command. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Now, before we get into the command, count it all joy, we got to look at the scenario. It says there's a certain time you need to count it all joy, and that is when you fall into diverse temptations. What in the world does that mean? The word fall is a very interesting word because it has a preposition on the front side, and the preposition is a preposition in the Greek that we use in English. I'm going to spell it for you. P-E-R-I. For those of you who've been in the Navy, you probably recognize that preposition because if you were ever in a submarine, there was some part of that submarine that used that, and that's called a periscope. Now, the word peri has the idea of 360 degrees. And what does a periscope do? It goes in 360 degrees. See, that's why it's called a periscope. Now, the word peri there, of course, is talking about completely being surrounded, and the idea is that you fall, and when you fall, you completely surrounded, in this case, by diverse temptations. This is exactly the same word that is used in the parable of the Good Samaritan when the Bible says that the, uh, the, um, the man on the Jericho Road going uh, and was robbed, he fell among thieves. The picture here is literally he was surrounded by thieves or muggers. Now, I grew up in Chicago. I'm certainly grateful I was never mugged. But um, if you've ever been mugged, and I hope nobody has, one of the things that the, you get the picture here is that every single place this guy on the Jericho Road turned, he saw a mugger. He saw a thief. He looks in this direction, two big guys in front of him. Looks over here, here's a big ugly guy with a scar over here. Looks over here, man, there's a big huge guy over on this side, a couple tattoos. Looks behind him, there it is. You know, he's completely surrounded. That's not a nice picture. But this particular one is talking about being uh, completely surrounded with divers' temptations. What in the world is that? Okay, almost sounds like another Navy term there, divers, okay? So what does the word divers mean? Well, it's an old English word, and really it's not hard to understand what it means. All you got to do in, a, in modern English is take the word divers and add an E. And you got the word diverse. See, that's exactly what divers means. It means diverse. And in fact, it's interesting, this Greek word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when it talks about Joseph's color, uh, coat of divers colors. 
or many colors is how we put it. Okay, so the point is that uh, whatever these temptations are, they come in all kinds of shapes, all kinds of sizes, all kinds of wrapping paper, all kinds of different colors. They are diverse. Now, the word temptations here has the idea not of temptation, but uh, this particular word is a very interesting word because it also has the nuance of trials. And the idea is not necessarily temptation in the sense of what we think of in the sense of I'm driving down the road, I see a, a, a lustful billboard, and I'm tempted, okay? That's not quite the kind of temptation. This is a specific kind of temptation. This kind of temptation comes from a trial. Have you ever noticed that every trial you've ever been through is also a temptation? How many have ever had a flat tire? That is a trial, but it is also a temptation. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever been tempted to get frustrated when you get a flat tire? Have you ever been tempted to say, oh, what's going on? I mean, for me, I'm traveling for the Lord. So when I get a flat tire, now, wait a second, Lord, I'm doing this for you. Where did this flat tire come from? Well, you know, many times, every single, and I know that's a minor thing. In fact, I, I had a flat tire. I was flat on I-4. I may have told you this. I can't remember. I got a flat tire on I-4, and I'm pulling over with my RV. My flat tires are always on the RV. They are rarely on the truck. You know why? On the truck, we have Michelins. <laughs> when I was in the, in the 1980s, I, an evangelist, seasoned evangelist came to me and said, Brother Van Gelderen, I need to give you some seasoned evangelist advice. I'm waiting for some spiritual truth. You know what I'm talking about? And he says, Brother Van Gelderen, only get Michelins on your truck. Okay. Okay. So I've done it ever since. Okay. There it is. Great tires. Okay. But, um, uh, but on, on, uh, on RVs, they don't make Michelins for RVs. So you have to use Chinese imports. You with me on this? Yes. Yeah. And they get flat like nobody's business. I mean, I'm, trailers are, are just, just flat tires where you get them. So I had a flat tire, I-4. I'm sitting here thinking, what in the world am I going to do? I don't have my team with me. I don't have big hulking beasts like Luke over here, you know, come and help me lift that RV, you know. And so uh, I'm wondering, what am I going to do? I'm sitting here and a state farm truck pulled up right after me. He said, you know, I'm in between uh, tires. Uh, you need help? I said, yeah, it's flat right here. And, and uh, I thought, well, this is great. Guy gets out. He's 80 years old. I'm thinking, I'm <laughs> I should be able to do this without him. But anyway, he gets out. Of course, he had all the equipment. And uh, while we're doing this thing, I started talking to him about the gospel. And you know what he said to me? He said, it's amazing. You said that. He said, my daughter's been after me. She's been going to church and she's been after me about getting saved. Now I knew why I had my flat tire. You know, many times we have situations like that and, and we're just frustrated because think, why did this have to happen? I, maybe you're not like that. Maybe you're a more even-keeled person. I am all wired and ready to go. And I'm thinking, what in the world's going on here? But what, the matter, what would happen if you had a flat tire like that and you're all frustrated and fuming and whatever? And let's imagine God dropped down a video screen and said, if you didn't get this flat tire, then five minutes down the road, this would happen. And you look on the screen and there's your vehicle going down there, getting a terrible wreck, goes up in flames, and you come to home to heaven a little bit early. <laughs> I'll tell you what, you'd have a glory hallelujah meeting on the side of the road, wouldn't you? Praise God for that flat tire. Hallelujah. And here's the point. God says, I want you to have the praise meeting, but I'm not dropping the TV down. I want you just to believe it. See, so understand what's going on here. He says, there's going to be times you're going to fall into diverse trials. And every trial is a temptation. It doesn't matter what it is. It's always a temptation, and the temptation is to react in unbelief. It may manifest itself different. 
in all of our lives because we're all different personalities. But the bottom line is it's a temptation to doubt God. Now, temptations can come, like I said, this word diverse means can come in all kinds of different shapes. How about physical trials? Illness comes into people's lives. Or how about someone you love in your family or someone you love that's close to you? God takes them home and you're thinking, God, that doesn't make sense. There are people I've known and love who died and I still, it doesn't make sense to me. From my perspective, I think God would have been better off of leaving them here. But you know, God doesn't always do it like we're thinking. My sister went home to, to be with the Lord in 2010 at age 54. One of the godliest Christians I've ever known. I'm, didn't make sense to me, still doesn't make sense to me. That's not the point. There are times, friends, we have trials. God takes someone we dearly love and it doesn't make sense. Or how sometimes there's, a, as I mentioned, physical trials and illness and ailments come in and difficulties that way and doctor's visits. and That doesn't make sense. Sometimes we have financial reversals. I remember 2008. I don't know how it was in your community, but I tell you, as I travel the country, I was in a lot of churches where there are a lot of people that were really hurting. Some had lost their shirts. Some of them were in the real estate business. Had some lost their businesses. I mean, it was a tough time. Financial reversals, we understand that. And, and, uh, and for some of us, the last few years, have you ever noticed that every time you go to the grocery store, it's more expensive than the other time? Like 20 years at Walmart, you could almost predict what the price is going to be. Now you have no idea next time you go. Yeah, there's difficulties. And sometimes I don't, I sometimes think politicians don't get inflation. And I got the reason why. They never go to the store. <laughs> the president of the United States, I'm not talking about just this one, but all presidents need to go to the store every once in a while. Just see how their policies are fleshing out down low. I, I shouldn't have said that, but you know what I'm talking about. That's just a little policy there uh, idea. But yeah, sometimes financial reversals, financial pressures. How about this one? Spiritual trials. Some of the greatest trials people go through nobody can see. I've dealt with people who doubted their salvations who were tormented by a lack of assurance of salvation. Just tormented. Going through a secret trial. Some people, uh, I, in fact, I love the biography on, on um, the life of uh, Oswald Chambers because in it, David McCaslin, his biographer, has a chapter. And I love the chapter. It says, the dark night of the soul. Chambers can even contemplated committed suicide. It was just, just a very dark time in his life and God illuminated the truth to him. And of course, he wrote that great devotional, his utmost for our, my utmost for his highest and had been read by literally millions. Went through the spiritual darkness and, and sometimes there's relationship deterioration. Relationships you never thought would deteriorate, there they are. You thought you'd always get along with your parents and now there's tension. You always get along with your brother or sister and then there's a, there's a wedge. And those are tough relationship deteriorations or a marriage that begins to go south. All these things are real. And so here's what God is saying when, you, when you're in a situation and you see, seem to be completely surrounded by trials and each trial is a unique temptation. When you're completely surrounded by all these things, God says, here's what I want you to do. Count it all joy? That sounds a little odd to you? It sure sounds odd. We'd, we'd say it's counterintuitive. You know one of the reasons we know the Bible is true? Because no human being would have written that. That had to come from God. Count it all joy? 
Now, the word count is a very important word because the word count has absolutely nothing to do with your emotions. It has everything to do with what is. Okay, one of the things uh, I was talking years ago at the college, a Christian college, a large Christian university I went to, and, and I was talking with some of the business people, and they said, you know, he said, we really struggle with our music faculty. Their finances are in shambles. But on the other side, our math faculty, man, they're, they're, man, their finances are pristine. I just thought that was interesting. Nothing against you music people. I'm just, I'm just telling you what he said to me, okay? I, uh, but, you know, maybe one of the reasons math people is because they're not persuaded by their emotions. Yeah, in other words, we all know that, you know, so, you know what accounting and math is? Uh, it's, it's unemotional. It's completely detached to emotion. In other words, it doesn't matter how you feel. What's in your bank account is in your bank account. And feeling bad about it doesn't make it less, and feeling good about it doesn't make it more. So accounting has nothing to do with emotion. It has everything to do with facts. Okay, so let me use a quick little uh, illustration. Uh, back in the day, remember when you went to the bank to do banking? You remember that? I still go to the bank to do banking, especially at Christmas time. You say, why? Free coffee and cookies, friends. I'm telling you, why wouldn't you go to the bank to do banking? Okay, uh, okay so anyway... Let's imagine, remember the day you got your checkbook? Remember the checkbook? These millennial Gen Zers are looking at me like I have no idea. It's paper, okay? And a checkbook, and then you'd write the date, and you'd write the word deposit, and then you'd fill out a deposit slip. You know, you'd have your check, you'd sign it over. Let's just say it's $500. You want to deposit this in your savings account. And so you go to the bank, and you write deposit, and got that $500, and you write in the deposit right there the amount. You put five zero zero. You remember that? Now, you could write 5000. You could add a zero. You know what that's called? Wishful thinking. That is not accounting. Yeah, see. Accounting is, it's 500. So you take that $500 check and you hand it in to the cashier and she does her thing, you know, and then uh, ding, you know, remember the ding, and then your little deposit slip comes out. She hands you a deposit slip and it says 500. And then, of course, you open your checkbook and do what I just said. You write 500, 500 in checkbook. That's called accounting. Now, let's imagine while she hands you that deposit slip, you just think to yourself, oh, I just don't feel like I put 500 in. It's raining outside in 40 degrees. Now, let me just take it from a northerner. I'd rather have, I'd rather have snow in 30 any day over rain in 40. You guys with me on this? I don't know if you are. I mean, rain in 40 is the worst. Okay, so here it is. You think it's raining outside 40 degrees. My hot water heater went out. My dog just died. I just don't feel like there's 500. No, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how bad life is going, accounting has nothing to do with how you feel. You just write 500. Now, friends, that's what God is telling you to do. He said, whenever you are surrounded by trials, here's what you got to do. Open up the checkbook of life and write down all joy. You say, preacher, why would I do that? Because if you knew everything God knew, you'd be jumping up and down. So God is saying, make a decision of faith and believe that I have got this. And you need to just count it as all joy. One thing I will tell you, friends, and I'm speaking above my experience because we all know the trial and the temptation of the trial. But I will tell you, friend, one thing about it. Do you know what happens when God allows difficulties in his life, in our lives? It allows God to do what only he can do. Amen. Have you ever noticed you'll never cross the Jordan River unless there's a Jordan River? 
You're, you will never see Jericho walls fall unless there are. Help me out now. Aren't you glad you came tonight? Wow. You're going to go home and say, man, that preacher, man, man, you'd never see Jericho walls fall until there's Jericho walls. Yeah, I know it sounds simple, but we certainly, my friend, don't like Jericho walls, do we? And we don't like Jordan rivers, do we? And when we get surrounded by those things, God says, I want you to make a decision of faith. Write down, account it to be true, all joy. Now, I thought when I was preparing this message, how do I illustrate this? And an instant came back to me, and uh, it's not a perfect illustration, but hopefully it will help. Several years ago now, it had to be 20 plus, maybe 25, I, probably 90s. I was in, uh, up in uh, uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, and I got to say it like Knoxville. Did I say it right? Okay. And I was going down to Gainesville. Okay. Did I say that right? Okay. Up north, they'd say Gainesville. You know what I'm talking about? They'd say Knoxville. Okay. You know, they're not Southern when they do that. You get that. Okay. So anyway, I'm heading down there. And uh, uh, how many know the terrain between Knoxville and Gainesville? Okay. Can I see your hands? Okay. You know, it's beautiful and it's, it's mountainous. Uh, mountains if you're in the east. Okay. Hills if you're from the west. Okay. You get there. They're green. There's streams. There's windy roads. It's just beautiful. Okay. So I'm driving down, and I got to get to Gainesville because we got the war going on. And I mean, I got a hard wall, and my team's been getting ready, and, and everything's planned out, but I, I, don't have much, I don't have much fudge in there. So I'm driving down in a borrowed pickup truck, which, if you know anything about that area of the country, is the only mode of transportation, is a pickup truck. And so I'm going down those roads, and all of a sudden I remember that um, uh, the power went out. I mean, they just truck slowly lost its power. I'm losing power steering and I'm losing, pretty soon the truck is just coasting down the road. And you know how it is, you just wrestle the truck over to the side of the road and it just stops. I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Try to start it? Nothing. Turn on the radio? Nothing. Okay, I realize, okay, we got an electrical problem. So I do what everybody does. I go open up the hood. I look at the engine and think, looks good to me. <laughs> I, don't, I have no idea what's wrong. And uh, I'm thinking, what am I going to do? This is before cell phones, okay, were prevalent. I think I got my first cell phone in 99, so it had to be before then. And, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And, uh, oh, I remembered that I just passed on a, this four-lane road. I just passed an old gas station. You remember the kind of gas stations where you had, you had bays, you know, for cars to be worked on next to the gas station? How many remember that? Okay, these are the very old people in the room. Okay, but anyway, and so uh, I remember I got out, and I thought, well, i got to go back there. So whew, I'm, I'm running down the highway, you know, cross two lanes of traffic, cross over the center, cross over two more lanes of traffic. Nobody was coming. It was completely desolate. And I, I walked into that gas station. And uh, I, I, I can't prove this, but I'm pretty sure it happened. When I walked through that door, I think I walked into a time warp. Andy was there. Barney was there. Gomer was there. Floyd was there. You know, they were all there. I would say they were chewing the fat, but this was North Carolina. There was something else they were chewing, but we won't go into that. Okay, you understand. And so... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm worked up, okay? I know that's hard for you to believe, but I'm worked up. I'm going, listen, I got to preach tonight down in Gainesville, and I'm going, I need, my truck won't work. I, need, I mean, I'm just trying to motivate them. Not, no offense. I know you're Southerners, but please don't be offended by that. In that part of the country, I think they only have one gear. I've got a pickup truck. It's not the one with me, but it's got, uh, you know, five-speed. And, and the very first gear is what they call the granny gear. 
You only use that if you're uh, using an RV and you're going uphill. That's the only time you use the granny gear. Okay, anybody tracking with me on this? Because some of you may not know what I'm talking about. And I will tell you that day, every, every person in that room was in the granny gear. Finally, one good old boy got up and he kind of walks down. The, oh, I'm, yeah, I gotta go. I'm trying to motivate him. It didn't work. Okay, so he just comes down, grabs his tools, and he just kind of lopes out there. And, and uh, as he began to work on the, on the truck, uh, he noticed that it was the alternator. Alternator had gone out. And no big deal. I'll go get another one. And evidently, he had every kind of alternator for a pickup truck there was. Okay, and so he goes back. It's a used alternator. He comes back, you know, and, and I'm trying to hurry him up, you know, and, and he Here's, of course, the alternator was rusted. It wasn't even my truck at the time. It was a borrowed one. And, and uh, he's got his, you know, wrench on that, uh, the crusty old uh, rusty bolts or nuts, I mean. And, and he's, you know, he's going like this and like this. And he took the skin off all four of his knuckles. And I'm just about ready to do this. You know what I'm talking about? And you know what he did? He looked over at me and he smiled real big and he goes, Happy. <laughs> I said, man, they're not my knuckles and I'm not happy. <laughs> and then he took motor oil and put it on his knuckles. I, I don't know what motor oil does, but anyway, he put it on his knuckles and he just kept going. Pulls that thing out, comes back with another one. You know how it is? He gets it in there, gets the nut on the bolt and goes ding, 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 you know. Then he looked at me real big, smile real big and go, happy. <laughs> Everything that went wrong, and there were several things that did. He looked at me and he said, happy. And I'm going to be honest with you, it irritated the fire out of me. <laughs> you know why, friends? Because I was walking in unbelief and he was walking by faith. <laughs> See, you know, in a certain sense, you know what God is simply saying? Next time something goes wrong, look at your wife and say, happy, she is going to think you need to take you down to the funny farm. You know what I'm talking about? Something happened to my husband. Yeah. But I think that helps us understand a little bit of what it means. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Okay, so let's continue on. I think we understand the command. Now let's look at the reason. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Now what does that mean? Well, you know, it's like this, friends. When your faith's tried, it means this. You can't figure out what God's doing. There are times in my life difficult things will happen, but pretty soon you begin to realize, oh, I see. I see what God's doing. In October of 2005, we wrecked a, an RV. Don't go into the whole story. I think I've told it here before, but I will tell you. For the first few hours, we might have been wondering what was going on, but it didn't take long before miracle after miracle after miracle. And pretty soon we said, I see what God's doing. You see, when things become sight, they're no longer faith. And you know what faith is? Faith is when you can't figure out what God's doing. Have you ever been in a situation you're thinking, what in the world's going on? Now, I'm not trying in any way to minimize the bigger trials by using an illustration, a hypothetical illustration of smaller trials. But for just a moment, I'd like us to consider, um, have you ever had a bad day? You know what I'm talking about? Just a bad day. I mean, everything goes wrong. And by the way, you know what always happens on a bad day? You wake up too late. Oh, you bought, oh, I got to get going here. Man, how did that happen? And you get down there, you know how it is. And I got to get a little breakfast here and get into work here. Boy, the traffic's going to be getting worse. And so you grab out some cereal, real quick breakfast, you know, grab some milk, put it on the cereal, start eating. Oh, the milk's spoiled. 
You know how it is. You get up, knock the cereal. It goes all over the ground. You got soggy Captain Crunch all over and milk. And you're thinking, oh, this is terrible. Then you step back and your sock hits it. And you slip and you hit the cat just right. It's the last meow. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, thinking, man, I have no time to clean this up. I got a dead cat. You're thinking, oh, it's not laundry today. So you empty the hamper, put the cat in the bottom, put the cat. Hope your wife doesn't do laundry on the wrong day. Okay, but anyway, you know how it is. Just one of those days, you're frustrated. I got to get in the car, you know, put it in reverse. Boom, hit the garage door. Forgot to put the garage door up. Got to manually disconnect it, put it up, all splinters. I got to fix that later. Oh, man, frustrated. You get out there, and it's raining, and it's a tough day. And, and you know what? You get to work. Your boss is upset. You're late. You go to the water cooler, look down. You got two different color socks on, you know? Just one of those days, wife calls, says the roof's leaking, you know, all that kind of thing. And finally, you're on the way home because it's Wednesday night. You want to be a good Christian, get to church. And so you're coming in a little too fast and you hydroplane. First the cat, now the dog. Yeah, right over the dog. At least you only have to dig one hole. Okay, you know how it is. Just one of those days. And then you know how it is. You get to church and your wife, being a great wife, contacts some of the men in the church. So oh, my husband's had a terrible day. Make sure you encourage him. And so the dear men here at Canaan Baptist Church come up to you. They throw your arm around you and say, hallelujah, brother. All things work together for good. Now, what do you want to do to that dear brother who has put his arm around you? Yeah, I get the idea, don't you? Now, what's the problem? Is the problem is you don't believe that? No, the problem is you're having a hard time reconciling what the Bible says and what you're going through. You know what that's called? The trial of your faith. But the Bible says that that trial of faith does something. It works patience. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But another illustration of trial of your faith would be this, uh, just one that might help, uh, kind of help us understand it, because sometimes we have no idea, and sometimes we don't figure it out for a while what God was really doing. Sometimes it may take to eternity. But uh, read the story of a, uh, of a, a, mission, a missionary who was in China at, at the time of the, uh, the communist revolution, and um, he... Um, the communists come through and ransacked the orphanage that he was the director of. And, and during that, that particular assault, uh, his glasses were destroyed. And he said in, in, in peacetime, it would be difficult to replace them in China. He said in wartime, impossible. As a result, he was having daily headaches. His staff was praying fervently that God would do something. And he was incapacitated, was not able to do the full work. And, and, um, and tough things were going on. But unbeknownst to him, there was a church in the States and, and they had... Um, uh, they had decided to, to, to put a care package together and send it over to the orphanage. And so the Ladies Missionary Society had collected things. And they had asked a man in his church who was a carpenter that if he could build the boxes and, and nail them shut and send them over to, to, uh, to, uh, to China. And so, so that's what he did. They, he one day got together, he built the boxes, he put all the care package things in, and, and then he nailed it shut, took it over to the post office, and he sent it off. This is during the Depression. As he's driving home, the carpenter reached for his glasses. Where are my glasses? Began to retrace his footsteps, and he realized that most likely they had fallen into the cart, and they were on the, the box he had built, and they were on their way to China. And he cried out in exasperation, God, I'm trying to serve you, and now this. Now, for us in America today, we wouldn't think twice about replacing glasses, but this was the Great Depression. Well, that, about a year later, that carpenter heard that there was uh, the orphanage 
uh, director was going to come by the church and give a report. And he, he thought, well, I definitely was just kind of curious to know what happened to those glasses. So he showed up in the back of the auditorium and, and the man got up and he was glowing. He said, I've been so looking forward to this meeting. He said, I want to just thank you so much for the care package you sent. But most of all, he said, I have got to thank you for the glasses. And the Ladies Missionary Society began looking at each other and said, we didn't have glasses in that care package. He must have gotten us mixed up with another church. Oh, but there was a carpenter in the back of the church. His ears perked up. And he told the story, yet the glasses had been destroyed. His co-workers were praying daily that God would do something. He said, when your care package arrived, he said, they opened up the top and there, were your, there was a set of glasses <clears throat> sitting right there on the top. He said, immediately my workers brought the glasses to me. And he said, you're not going to believe it. They were exactly the prescription that I need. Amen. He said, thank you for the glasses. The Ladies Missionary Society was amazed. But there was a carpenter in the back of the auditorium. Tears by now were streaming down his face as he thanked the master carpenter that he knew what he was doing. Amen. See, that's the trial of your faith. And the Bible says when you and I come to those things that it produces something that it can be produced no other way. You say, what's that? Patience. You say, preacher, I was afraid you are going to say that. <laughs> One of the, we all know patience is a tough deal, isn't it? And the thing about this word patience is so interesting. It really has some rich meaning embedded into the very word. It's, it's the Greek word hupomeno. And, and it comes, there's a preposition hupo, which is the idea of under. And then there's the word meno, which is the great verb of John 15, translated abide. It really has the idea of abiding under. It has the idea of trusting God under pressure. Could I put it this way? It has the idea of trusting God in the frying pan. Now, here's what God is saying. You cannot learn to trust God in the frying pan without the frying pan. I want to be honest with you. I don't like frying pans. I don't like pressure. I bet you you don't either. But God is saying there is no other way to come to Christian maturity without learning during difficult times to trust me when you can't figure out what I am doing. The trying of your faith works patience. It teaches us to trust God under pressure. Okay, now, that brings us to the second command in verse number four. It says, but let patience have her perfect work. The idea there sounds passive if we just kind of assume it on face value, but it's actually not. The idea there really is, I want, you, need to, you need to make sure patience has its perfect work. This isn't passively led, it's actively. In other words, you need to actively trust God under pressure. And you need to trust God as long as he deems the fire pan, the frying pan, where you need to be. I'll be honest with you, over the years, oh, actually in my, let me put it this way, I remember when I showed up at Bible college years ago, I was a large university and and uh, uh, we had probably a thousand students in my freshman class. There were, there were definitely uh, hundreds of preacher boys that came in with me. And, and I remember a lot of those preacher boys that showed up, <clears throat> uh, they, uh, they, were, um, they were all excited. And a lot of them said, bless God, God's called me to preach. If it's the last thing I do, I'm going to preach. And everybody's all excited. But I noticed about nine weeks later, the excitement began to diminish. You know what's called? Roommates. You guys ever heard of them? <laughs> School bills. Midterm examinations. Yeah, things like that began to come into their lives. And you know what I noticed in the next two years? A lot of them never came back. They left and never came back. 
Once they seemed to get in the fifth semester, almost they always would finish. But in the first two years, a lot of them left. Now, I'm not, certainly don't know every scenario, but I will tell you in 39 years of ministry traveling this country, I have never heard of a one of them in a positive way serving the Lord. I've heard negative ways. But I've never heard of one of them serving the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong, they might be. But all of them were so-called called to preach. I've never heard of one of them in the ministry, not one. And I've wondered to myself, did they get out of the frying pan? Did they get out of God's will? Now, I don't know that, but you've got to wonder. And so God's telling us here, friends, let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect in the entire wanting nothing. Notice the only way to Christian maturity is through patience, having its perfect work, trusting God under, trusting God under the pressure, trusting God in the trial, trusting God in the difficulty. I, um, there was a teacher that was Sunday school teacher and she was preparing for a lesson and she was going to be speaking out of Malachi on uh, uh, he sitteth as a refiner and purifier as silver. That was her text for the Sunday school lesson. So she decided to do something probably most Sunday school teachers wouldn't do. She decided to go find a silversmith and uh, to ask questions. So when he, she gave the lesson about God sitting as a refiner and purifier of silver, that she'd have some. So she sat down with this silversmith, got an appointment, and she said, um, I want to ask you a question. When you refine your silver, do you sit? And here's what he said Absolutely, I sit. He says, I sit because I want to gaze on the silver, because I do not want it in the, in the furnace a second later than it should be, because I do not want it damaged. I want to get it out of the furnace before it can be damaged. Well, that wasn't a comfort. Isn't it a comfort that God's sitting there as a refiner of silver? He's watching during the trial. He won't let you in, in the furnace a second longer than it needs to be for the job to be done. And so she asked many other questions, and, and she was kind of enthralled with it all. And as she was walking out the door, one final question hit her, and she turned to the silversmith, and she said this, Oh, I forgot to ask you this. How do you know <clears throat> that the silver is refined, and you can pull it out of the furnace? He said, Oh, that's easy. I can see my reflection in the silver. You see, what God is simply saying is, I want to leave you in the furnace as long as I can until I know that I, my reflection is seen in you. See, God says, let patience have a perfect work. I'll be honest with you. I think a lot of us, myself included, we don't like the trials. We want them out as fast as they can. But what God is saying is, he's saying, trust me under pressure. Trust me in the frying pan. Let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Reminds me of a story in the Bible. If we talked about furnaces or frying pans in the Bible, all of us know which story we think of. We would think of three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's such an interesting story. We all know what it is. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar, who was cocky, whatever, he puts up a, a big, huge image and, and, of course, commands everybody to bow down, etc. We all know, know the story. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't do it because the Old Testament told them not to. Their loyalty was to God, not to political situations. First to God. We ought to be God rather than man. Perfect illustration of that. So they're hauled before Nebuchadnezzar, who tries to be a reasonable man, but that certainly went out the window. And uh, the Hebrew children said, we're not careful to answer thee, O king. And basically they said this, our God is able to deliver us. Is that true? 
Yeah, it was true. Then they said, He's going to deliver us out of thine hand. So the first one is, He's able to deliver us. The second one is, He's going to deliver us. And then they said something that to me shows great Christian maturity. But if not, in other words, if we somehow missed this, thought it, but if not, basically said, oh, king, we're not bowing down. And, of course, Nebuchadnezzar's visage when it changed toward them, and he went into a rage and commanded them to be thrown in the fiery furnace. Now, okay, so you have to understand, here's the three Hebrew children. He's able to deliver us. Now we're going to get a little bolder. He's going to deliver us. And then number three, but if somehow we're missing and he's not going to deliver us, we're still not bowing down. Okay, so they, I believe, really believed God was going to deliver them from the furnace. So can you imagine their thought, life, their thought process? So all of a sudden these big, huge brutes coming in, big, huge army guys coming in. They gather them up like footballs, kind of what I'm imagining. You know what I'm talking about? Hand them over there, and they're running toward the furnace. And I imagine their prayer life was improving at this point. You know what I'm talking about? And so they're probably thinking, now, Lord, you're going to deliver us, so this would be a good time. Nothing. Went a little further, came right up to the edge. Of course, the fire's so hot, it ends up killing the guys, throwing them, they throw them, and they die, okay? And they're hurtling into the furnace, and I'm sure they're saying, now, Lord, you're running out of time. Nothing. But don't miss this. I want you to see this. They, they were certainly, uh, what they said was good, but I will tell you, God did not deliver them from the furnace. He delivered them in the furnace. And He delivered them, don't miss this, with his very presence. I don't know how many people I've talked to have said, you know, I never want to go through that again, but I wouldn't change anything. Because when I went through that trial, the Lord was with me. Yeah, trusting God in the fire. Trusting God in the furnace. Trusting God in the difficulties. And God says, that's when you learn, your, God brings you to be perfect and entire. Wanting nothing. My mother was grown, uh, grew up in a family in middle Illinois, and her dad was actually behind, uh, ahead of the time. He was trying different hybrids, and he had Gerber baby jars with different corn hybrids all over the living room. And as a result, he had bumper crops, and he was, again, ahead of his time. And, and for farmers, they were very well off. My dad was much poorer. They hardly had any pictures. My mom had all kinds of pictures. We still have them today, beautiful pictures uh, for that day. And... Um, so anyway, but uh, her dad um, was uh, was farmer. Mom uh, was uh, was second marriage because first wife had died, and that was my mother's mother was the second uh, wife, and and uh, she went out one day to milk the cows, and she had a brain aneurysm, fell over. A neighbor, a teenage boy, picked up my grandmother and carried her into the house. And years ago, I went down to that town and I met the, the teenage boy who was now then an old man. I'm sure he's gone now. And he talked about carrying my grandmother into the house. She lingered for three days and died. If that had happened today, they would have taken her to the hospital. Most likely, she would have 100% recovered with today's technology. But she lingered for three days, and my mom watched that at nine years old and watched her mother linger and die. Nine years old, my mother had no mother. Her dad died when she was 14. <laughs> Her dad died of old age because my grandfather was 29 years older than my grandmother. My grandfather, okay, I want you to understand, not great-grandfather. My grandfather was born in 1865. My grandfather was born when Civil War bullets were being shot. And uh, so he died of old age. And so at age 14, 
My, uh, my mother had no parents. Now, this is back before all the alphabet soup government agencies. And so her older brother and herself raised, they raised themselves. The mother, the parents had left them enough money. They could just, they hired a maid. They had a house, a little house outside of town they bought. And their guardian lived 30 miles away. And this is what they did. They just raised themselves. Kind of an unthinkable thought, but they did. And it was very difficult. And uh, my, uh, my mother, as as a result of that, she had enough money. She enrolled in a college over in Jacksonville, Illinois, called McMurray College. It was a teacher's college. She was going to be a teacher. She went there for one year, and she had some godly cousins that were more like an aunt and uncle age-wise who urged her and said, why don't, you, why don't you transfer to a Christian college? So before her sophomore year, she transferred to a college by the name of Wheaton College. I wouldn't recommend it today, but back in the day, that was a college where revival fires burned. One of her classmates was a guy by the name of Jim Elliott. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but she was, he was one of her uh, classmates. Also, uh, a young lady by the name of Betty Howard. You probably know her name more by the name of Elizabeth Elliott. Those were classmates, as well as Libby Hanford and, and uh, uh, Rice Hanford and, and some of the Rice sisters from Evangelist John R. Rice were all her classmates. And, and so she spent much time over at the home of Evangelist John R. Rice, and, and uh, some of his daughters were in the college there. And he had a little revival newspaper called The Sword of the Lord. I don't know if you ever heard of that. Yeah. And uh, so my mom graduated from college. I think she went and got a one-year degree at Viola over in Los Angeles, came back to Wheaton, and went to work uh, for a lady by the name of Viola Walden, the secretarial pool of the sword of the Lord. And uh, my mother could not talk about John R. Rice without tears coming into her eyes because his preaching so changed her life. She loved Dr. Rice, as she affectionately called him. And, and he almost became a father figure to her in a spiritual sense. And uh, so... Um, uh, but at that point, she was very lonely, had no pros really no family other than an older brother, but he was in a different location, and, and he, was, um, uh, he was serving the Lord. But anyway, and didn't have a lot of family, and, and her, uh, the rest of her family had no heart for God, and she was lonely, 26 years old, no prospects of marriage. And, and um, uh, there was a guy that worked with the sword of the Lord by the name of Scotchy McCall. And uh, he was a pastor, but he was, took a few years to work at the sword. And he saw my 26-year-old mother, and he knew of a 26-year-old uh, single pastor in Miami, Florida. So one day he picks up the phone and calls a kid preacher, young preacher by the name of Wayne Van Gelderen, and said, Wayne, I need you in Chicago immediately. My dad respected the sword of the Lord and Dr. Rice, and so he got in his car and drove from Miami, Florida to Wheaton, Illinois. That's a long way. And it was all prearranged. He was going to meet at a certain restaurant on a certain day. So he walked in the restaurant wondering, what in the world's going on? There was Dr. McCall. There was his wife. And there was this girl, this 26-year-old girl. My dad's wondering, what's this girl doing here? I think that's why my dad was 26 and not married. Okay, but anyway, and so here it is. And then, what's this girl doing here? So they sat down uh, to eat the meal. They ordered their food. And about halfway through the meal, Dr. McCall and his wife got up and said, we'll see you two later. And they walked out the door. Six months later, my parents were married. But I remember my mother from time to time telling me, Jim, you know, when my parents died, it was tough. But she said, you know, I really never got bitter at God. She said, you know, but... I look back now and see what God was doing. If my parents had lived, she said, I would never have gone to Wheaton College. I would have never met John R. Rice. I would have never worked at the Sword of the Lord. And I would never have met your father. And you know what she was basically saying? And you wouldn't be here. 
Now, friend, I shudder to think about what would have happened if that little farm girl down in central Illinois had said, what does it matter? I'm just a farm girl in central Illinois. What does it matter? And she had gotten bitter at God. You know, I'm so glad that my mother trusted God in difficult circumstances. Don't miss this. For years, 14 to 26, she trusted God. She didn't, couldn't figure it out. She had no idea what God was doing. But that little farm girl trusted God. My friend, you and I do too. You might be saying, what does it matter? What does my life matter? Well, you might, my friend, recognize your life might matter a whole lot more than you think. And your unbelief may have more consequences than you realize. If you'll just trust God. I think about my mother. She uh, was very, had a lot of insecurities, a lot of difficulties because of losing her parents. But you know what she learned through all that? To trust God. I think she produced five children who all, who at this point are all serving the Lord. One of them's in heaven, four still down here serving the Lord. At this point, every one of her grandchildren is on tar is target to do whatever God wants them to do. Just because a little farm girl down in central Illinois said, I'm going to trust God under pressure. Can I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye closed? Would you mind just standing in your feet right where you are? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, standing in your feet. Just a moment, I'll ask our pianist to come and just play a hymn of invitation. Dear friend, here's what I'm going to ask tonight. If God's touched your heart with this truth, I'm going to invite you to come down and kneel at the altar and say, okay, God, happy, happy. Talk to God. God doesn't mind it when we let him know how difficult things are. But let's end with God. I can't see what you're doing, but I'm trusting you. If I knew everything, I would be so excited about it. So by faith, I'm going to account that if I knew everything there was to know, I would be excited and I would say all joy. If my mother could have seen what God's plan was at 14, she would have been excited. Instead, she had to trust God for years. She didn't get to see it for years. As the piano plays, would you come? Do a little business with God? Open up the checkbook of life? Write down all joy? Would you do that? This is a step of faith. 